We want to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of Minority Report Podcast with Eric and Carell. Each episode, we talk with leaders in business, tech, and media. And today, joining us is Monique Nelson, who's the Chair and Chief Executive Officer at UWG. Let's jump in and get to know Monique. Monique, welcome. How are you? I'm wonderful. Thank you for having me, Carell and Eric. It's great to be here. Absolutely. Monique, tell us a little bit about you. Can you tell our audience a little bit about where you grew up, where you were born and raised? Tell us a little bit about your background. Absolutely. I am a proud Brooklynite, born and raised, Crown Heights and bed Biggie is the best by far. So. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I loved my upbringing being in New York City, but it also was a really unique upbringing, right? Growing up in the 80s mm-hmm. and the 90s in New York was a bit of a bubble. Mm. Um, and ultimately, I didn't know what a bubble it was until I went to Vanderbilt University and recognized that, oh, the rest of the world isn't this lumpy stew I grew up in. So it was a very interesting opportunity. I was a posse scholar. So I actually went to, went to Vanderbilt with more than just a purpose of getting an education, but also the purpose of being a leader on campus and really shaking it up. Vanderbilt had aspirations of being a Stanford. They were tired of being called the Harvard of the South. And in order for them to get out of their own way, their chancellor was told, you must be more diverse. Mm -hmm. You must have more inclusion on this campus if you want to transcend this moniker of being the Harvard of the South. So I'm proud to be one of the third cohorts of Posse to go to Vanderbilt and shake it all up. And to fast forward to last summer and see a beautiful young woman Don the the field at an SEC football game and be the first female to be a kicker really says a lot about how hard and how, you know, how successful Vanderbilt has been in terms of really moving that needle and being thoughtful about being on that journey for over 20 years. That's so cool. I want to ask you a little bit about what that time was like going from, from Brooklyn to, to Vanderbilt. But first, tell us a little bit about What's going on at UWG? And and tell us what's happening as a CEO today. Absolutely. I mean, UWG is the longest standing multicultural marketing advertising consultancy. We believe in the world because we don't believe anybody's been doing this for 52 years. But we have. Our founder, Byron Lewis, started this vision in 1969. And I was proud to take over and buy the controlling stake of the agency on May 1st of 2012 and have been running it ever since. But our ethos is really about the fact that we talk to somebody, not everybody. Mm. We believe that culture matters everywhere. There's just no place that culture doesn't come into play. And that's what we really extend to our clients, that while we do all of the things that most agencies do, what we do do differently is look through what we call our unicultural lens, which really does unearth the information about the underserved, overlooked, and undervalued. And in this environment right now, Uniworld, we believe, has really hit the ground running. And we are the agency that people need for today's issues and challenges of the brand today. Yeah, that's neat. I want to ask you a little bit more about that, too. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about cultural DNA and what that means? Well, cultural DNA is, is embodied in me, too, right? We talked a little bit about, you know, growing up in Brooklyn, but, you know, didn't really tell you that my parents are, you know, my father's Guyanese. My mother's Texas, so I'm half Texan, half Guyanese. 
And they met in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and then moved to Brooklyn. So how crazy is that? Um, it's amazing. <laughs> but yeah, it's so much about, you know, who you are every day, what experiences you've had, what kind of exposure you've had throughout your life. And I've been really honored to be able to live culturally differently mm-hmm. my whole life. And then, you know, growing up in New York City, you know, really experiencing, I think I went to more bar mitzvahs than I went to sweet scenes. <laughs> So I'm, I'm pretty well versed. I did a, I did a good Torah yeah. at 13. Um, I could get the, it was always fun, but I always really enjoyed culture, which really makes the Uniworld experience for me very rewarding. And it really feels very genuine and authentic to me to look deeply into communities and really figure out how our brands can meet them. And Byron's moniker was, you know, the soul of the brand meeting the soul of the consumer. So we really believe that that unicultural lens allows you to see the soul of both. Monique, I want want to ask you a quick follow-up question on that about, you know, culture everywhere and the impact that I think the work from home experience over the last 15 months has had on that, right? As as we all get a much more deeper look into everyone's day-to-day and personal life and what impact has that had on the business and and just people understanding other cultures and maybe having more empathy for other people? Yeah, it was <laughs> funny you say that. You know, I remember when we got into this pickle about 15 months ago, and I just remember feeling so helpless as a leader. And I was just like, what am I going to do in this moment? Right. I can't touch my people. I can't, you know, be near them. And, you know, I just started, I just picked up the phone. I just called everybody in the agency personally and said, how are you? How are you doing? Is there anything we can do to help? And some folks had a lot to say. Some folks had nothing to say. Some people didn't even pick up the phone. (laughs) But, you know, it's definitely now about looking into an individual and being really thoughtful. My parents and caregivers needed something different from my folks that lived alone. There were, you know, so many things that transcended, you know, any type of difference that was just about humanity. And how do I look at humans as humans and and take that out of a work context? But then the beautiful part is everybody was in the same situation, right? Our clients were in the same situations, our partners, our vet, everyone. So we, we would always start with grace. You know, if your kid runs in, that's okay, right? Your dog barks, that's okay. That means somebody's at the door. That's good. Yeah. You know, let's really take this and make it a human experience. And I have to say, I believe UWG is better for it. I feel much more connected to my team. I feel connected to folks that I haven't even met yet. As you can imagine, you've hired people, folks have moved people, you know, that I've never even encountered, but I just still feel very connected. I continue to host safe spaces every couple of weeks where people can just drop in and say hi, and we can have that informal kind of conversation. We can talk about what's on their mind. We started having safe spaces around, you know, George Floyd, the pandemic, the She Session, you know, AAPI, anything that we could do to make sure that it was topical and that people felt heard and felt supported no matter where you were in the UWG family. Monique, I want to ask you a little bit about your family and background again and, you know, growing up in the 80s and 90s, sort of Brooklyn and going to Vanderbilt, you know, where you lived, who you grew up with, what you did, how does that sort of impact who you are today and how you essentially sort of work with others? Yeah, it's it's foundational, right? I think just knowing that the difference wasn't a problem, 
right? Difference was about adapting. Difference was about finding shared space and being able to collaborate in ways that gave you really wonderful outcomes. I think that's always been, I guess, a foundational piece of me. I don't think I knew what it was. Now I can articulate it in a way that, you know, with marketing speak and mm. all this education that I've, I've been given, it's a good thing to be able to articulate it. But it certainly does come through for me as, you know, one of my superpowers to be able to go into any room, feel comfortable about bringing people together and executing against the plan. Yeah. That's great. How did you learn to do that and ultimately sort of get started on your career path? Tell us about that. Yeah, well, I talked a little bit about it, but I think the Posse Foundation was an amazing experience, right? To be 16 years old, thrown into a group, right? So Posse is about sending cohorts, right? Like, so you're never alone, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the one thing that is a thread throughout everyone's life. It's just, it hasn't necessarily been articulated in that way, but I, I have to say, what a gift at 16 hmm. to be given that gift of team. Yeah. Right. And that even if there's conflict, right, there's conflict resolution, right. Even if there's loss, there's support. And then of course, when there's that wonderful high and you win, you've got that cheering squad for you. And there's just nothing like that. And you see that everywhere in your life. Right. And especially at work, you know when you have an amazing team and amazing things are happening because you're connected. More than likely, you know each other's weaknesses, you know each other's strengths, and you're able to really speak to those in a way that is advantageous, right? And not, you know, not it's not going to take away that, you know, maybe you could have done that a little bit better or, you know, here's some really good feedback. And I think I was steeped in that so young that it's just been a part of my DNA. And we were also taught to find the white space. If there's something missing, fill it. So that's been extremely valuable for me, not only as a team member, but certainly as a leader to coach people to say, even if it's not there, create it if you can, or at least raise it rather than, you know, leave it as a gap. What do you love about being a CEO? I love, I absolutely love seeing people grow. I love watching people go from, I remember hiring a strategic planner who was a professor. There was a shortage of people that, you know, were doing strategic planning and certainly strategic planning in the cultural areas. And I remember sitting with our HR person and we should probably look somewhere else, right? There's got to be some place where there are transferable skills. And we started thinking about it and I said, you know what? I bet you there's a PhD who is, you know, her feet or his feet are just being put to sleep. Let's go find him. And we found this amazing sister who was teaching Spanish, PhD, you know, doing her dissertation. And I said, what do you think about advertising? You can do research, right? You know how to look deeply into certain communities. And certainly for her, it was Latin culture. I said, now what I can do is teach you how to be brief. And we certainly did. And she came in, worked with us for about two and a half years, and then went off. And I believe she's now a VP of strategy in some agency somewhere. I think her last one was DDB. But, you know, that is just so warming to me because that was a space and a place for a woman of color to come into our industry at a pretty, you know, senior level, right? Because she had it all she needed. And what we could then do is really coach her into what advertising and marketing is and can be. And it didn't mean you had to, you know, know anybody or be at an agency forever to do this, right? She could come in and really add value and she did. 
And I think that's what I love the most about that story is that you didn't look for sort of that cookie cutter resume. You you looked and thought outside of the box and really focused in on, I think, the skills needed for that position. And by doing that, you're able to bring in a diverse candidate. So I, I really love that story. Absolutely. Thank you. No, I think it's important. We need to move our brain a little bit. Yeah. Side, right. Otherwise, we continue to recycle and you don't get new energy. You don't get new things. You don't get innovation. That's the creativity. That's what we're supposed to be about. Right. Right. And that leads right into my next question, which was going to be around sort of what do you think we should be doing? Right. All as an industry to improve inclusivity within our in- industry and improve diversity within our industry. I think you just great gave a great example. Anything additional you want to add to that? Yeah, I just think that, you know, give everybody a shot, right? As long as they're prepared to do the work and get involved, I think there's room, especially in our industry, for all thought processes, right? There's very little that we don't touch. And there's also, we have a huge responsibility. People see more advertising than they see of anything else. And I think it is so important that we have representation from everywhere to ensure that we're doing the best by the consumer, right? Like at the end of the day, we're asking them to either give us something, whether it be money, their information, their time. And I think we owe it to them to reflect all the things that are important to them. And that means we have to have people that don't live in this bubble that we have created and designed. Right. Especially now, because I also feel now more than ever, consumers have smartened up to the fact of like, they want to spend their dollars with brands that align with their own values, right? And they want to see themselves in the product that they're buying. So it's even from a business perspective, it's even more important to be focused on that now more than ever as well too. Oh, absolutely. There is a DROI for sure. Monique, you know, you grew up in a place that had a lot of culture, had a lot of diverse backgrounds, and then you were transported into a place that didn't look like that. You're a woman, you're a woman of color. Were there moments where you faced discrimination or resistance or anything that forced you to have to reconcile with a moment like that? I'll just pick a few, but yes, (laughs) there were many. Early on in my life, first and second grade, I got called the N-word more than I wanted to even think about. My father decided to take a job up in Syracuse, New York, and I was the only Black kid for eight grades, right? Really a lot of pressure. And then, you know, I get to Vanderbilt University, first day, going to move in on campus, freshman quad, four Confederate flags in the windows, right? That, you know, but thankfully we were trained. That took us straight to the administration to kind of say, that's probably not the best way to welcome Mm. folks to the campus. And that's just, you know... It was part of their pride, but not really understanding what they were doing to to other students and what that would mean and what that could mean. So, you know, just proud to be able to, you know, say that that's not okay, and that it was, you know, hey, you can close your window and turn it the other way, but it doesn't necessarily have to be for all of us to experience. Yeah. So, you know, super hard. Of course, you know, I've 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 unfortunately been, you know, told I'm not the right one because of either the way I look or what I represented. And that's always hard. But for me, I have to say the way to kind of rebound was then that wasn't for me, right? Mm. I just had to believe that there was something bigger and better and 
shame on you for, you know, missing out on all this greatness, right? Yeah. Can you, for a moment, for those who may not have experienced that, can you just share what that feels like in that moment? You just feel so small and you feel helpless, right? Because there's usually no one quite around to defend Mm. against or, you know, people feel like, well, maybe that wasn't, you know, an ism and it is an ism. And a lot of times when you are trying to express the fact that you're uncomfortable or that you feel wronged for something that's amorphous, mm-hmm. it's hard. And you you start to question yourself. You start to wonder whether or not you are good enough. And thankfully, I had a very strong communal network and people yeah. that would continue to feed me and let me know that, no, you're doing everything you're supposed to. And, you know, that that can't define you and don't let it define you. But you know, I'm human, right? Right. Like everybody else, it hurts, right? If someone tells you something that, you know, you don't believe to be true. And of course you want it, right? You want it to be good. And when it's, when it's not, it's, it's hard. And it, it certainly can, you know, have you question, you know, everything that you've done and whether or not you're good enough. Thank you for sharing those experiences with us because they're real. I want to ask you about that tremendous understanding that you clearly have from an early age to be able to sort of work through issues like that and, and, and overcome situations like that. You clearly had some folks that have impacted you in such a positive way. Can you talk a little bit about some of those people or maybe sort of heroes or mentors or important sure. people to you in your life and in your career? Absolutely. I mean, you know, first and foremost, shout out to big shout out to Jonathan and Dorothy Nelson, the forebearers and the people that have clearly made me who I am today and continue to be. You know, my parents are my partners, right? They they help me buy the agency. My husband's um, involved. So it's a, it's a family effort. So they are, you know, my, my rocks and, and everything that kind of keep me sane. Moreover, you know, people like Michael Ainsley, who is the former CEO of uh, Sotheby's, has been a mentor of mine forever and has just continued to guide me in ways that I I never even thought I I could. <laughs> so he's been an absolutely amazing person. I have a group of, you know, girlfriends that I live for that are superstars in their own right. People like Naja Bell and White, people like Kathleen Jones, Susan Chapman that just kind of keep me grounded and let me know that I'm, I'm, I'm ready for whatever comes in front of me. So that's, that's just a wonderful, you know, group of people. And then, you know, of course, how I met you, you know, that whole A-list group, this team of people have just, you know, given me life over the last few years in particular. And I'm just so thankful to have a community like that, to be able to lean into, to refer I get asked a lot, you know, where are more people like you? Oh, there's, there's a whole bunch. They're right here. Awesome. <laughs> and I'm so proud to be able to, you know, to, to pay that forward and really kind of make sure that we are seen, right? And, and wherever I can, you know, lift us up, we, we must. But That's yeah, great. throughout my career, it's been, you know, lots of wonderful folks of all kinds. I cannot say that there's been any one group but I can honestly say they've always been additive and certainly uh, transformative for my life. That's cool. When you, ca- you mentioned paying it forward, and you know, we sometimes think about it as sort of passing on what you've learned from others to to sort of the next generation or to folks who are who are looking to learn more. What are some ways that you've been able to sort of pass on what you've what you've learned to others that are sort of newer in in, in the space and what they're doing? 
Sure. I've been working on a program actually now for about a year, a little over a year now. It's called We All Rise Together. And it's in conjunction with a bunch of industry leaders, black and brown primarily, that really started last year to say, you know what, when the pandemic hit and we saw a lot of our colleagues disproportionately getting laid off, just the stress of, you know, the whole health health issues and, and us losing family and then businesses that we knew may or may not survive. So we decided to come together and say, you know, we're going to be this community. We have access, we have resources, and why don't we put that to work? So we developed three pillars. We said, let's not do too much. We know how that works. <laughs> so <laughs> things really well. <laughs> One is around health and wellness, you know, just making sure that we're, we're taking care of ourselves. The other is around mobility, you know, giving people access for skilling up. If you were out of a job, let's not take this time to have a pity party. Let's just get you skilled up for that next job because this will too end. And we want you ready for the, the jobs of the future. And then the last one, which is near and dear to my heart, which was around really supporting black and brown, small and medium businesses. Because I know as an entrepreneur, there were so many questions that I had. There were so many things that you don't necessarily know the answers to. And absolutely no one told you how to be ready for a crisis, right? Nobody mm -hmm. told you how to be ready for a pandemic, a recession or depression. Oh, and by the way, racial and social injustice all happening at once. I don't even know how you do that. So it was really a matter of how can we support these businesses? So with all three pillars, we partnered with organizations that work in this space. So Circus Street, working with our mobility, we had beautiful black therapists and psychologists and yogis to kind of help with health and wellness. And then we partnered with the Acceleration Project on the Wealth Pillar to really come in and help whole businesses. When we saw what the PPP didn't do for black and brown businesses, it was heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. And I just remember, you know, having my finance team, my bankers. I mean, it was a lot, right? It was not intuitive by any stretch of the imagination. So I couldn't imagine how a smaller medium business could have endured that, especially if you didn't have a banking relationship. So we decided to try to just, if we can fill the gap, right? If we can fill that white space and give folks an opportunity to not only survive, but thrive through this crazy, amazing time, that was important to us. So I'm, I'm proud to say we're working with 13 businesses right now. And we're excited to see where that goes. But, you know, every bit of the support that we could give means a lot. So, yeah, I feel like, you know, we've, I've been pretty blessed and I'm proud to be here to be able to make sure that there's more of me. Wow. Monique, where do you draw inspiration from? You have so much going on and doing so much great stuff. What keeps you going every day? Oh, that seven and five-year-old. <laughs> listen, if there's nothing else, it's the fact that I want to be here for their grandchildren. So <laughs> they keep me, they keep me inspired every day. But I also just gain so much from my team, my people. My president and COO, Greg Edwards, is like the ish, right? He just makes it all work. I've got a great senior team. And it just means everything when they're winning, I'm winning and whatever mm -hmm. I can do to pour into them and give them access and allow them to do more, better, faster, however I can do that. It wakes me up every morning. It's just knowing that what you're doing means something and that we're uplifting communities every day. Right, right. And you mentioned your, your seven and five-year-old. have to ask, is there such a thing as work-life balance? Like, how are you managing it all? <laughs> No, they sleep right in. 
<laughs> they're a part of it all. I love it. Normally, they, you know, they'll be barreling through here shortly, coming from Taekwondo. But you know, they they visit my meetings if they're here, and I love that. I love that yeah. they now know what I do every day. Right? Like without this time, they just thought I left and came back. <laughs> <laughs> they now actually get a chance to to see it. And my seven year old actually goes, oh, "Mommy talks for a living." <laughs> yeah, tell stories for a living. Storytelling. There you go. <laughs> that's, that's, I'm a little bit, a little more than that. But yes, yeah. yes, <laughs> definitely a little bit more than that. Fun question. I love asking everyone we have on the podcast, which is to give us the top three apps that you use on your phone, but you can't name email, calendar, or text messaging. Okay. Well, because okay. I don't cook on Fridays, DoorDash. All right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Geneva. Yep. I know about that one. <laughs> and most recently, probably I'm using a Quilt. Tell us about that one. So Quilt is another audio platform and it's not quite Clubhouse, but a little like Clubhouse. More health and wellness focused more about mindfulness, mm-hmm. um, calming. It's been a rough end of the year with my children. I'm ready for summer. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> before that, I would have told you the Calm app is probably, I, I live there most of the time as well. Gotcha. Well, Monique, thanks so much for hanging with us. A lot of our audience likes to stay in touch. What are some ways that they can find you or follow you? Let's see. Uh, IG is probably you know, pretty good for me. I'm at, at Mo, CEO, UWG, and then LinkedIn. I love LinkedIn. It's actually probably the place that I spend the most time if I'm going to communicate with folks. So Monique Nelson. Excellent. Well, we learned a lot today. Thank you so much for hanging with us. We learned to sort of think outside of the box when thinking about candidates and, and how to, you know, really sort of bring new talent into the industry, give everybody a shot. We also learned about how to pay it forward. And we learned about some some great ways to do that. Thanks so much again, Monique. And thanks again, everyone, for listening. And you can find more episodes where you find all of your audio and video. Just search Minority Report Podcast and look for the logo. Thanks. Thanks.